Well, thank you, Drew, and man, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to speak live in Webster on the weeks that I am slated to speak. Grateful to Drew for his support and encouragement and the opportunity to do that. Also, really looking forward to the series that's coming from Israel. Some of that footage was amazing, and uh, looking forward to seeing Israel and seeing the Bible come to life in that upcoming series. And excited, too, to have this chance to walk our church into a brand new series today, a series that we are going to be in over these next four weeks, where we're going to be talking about when life hits us hard. And this has really been a series that we have kind of felt a growing need and necessity to have, especially as we look back over the last year, two years, and just have had to see what we've had to to walk through. I know even at a personal level, I've felt that as I've had conversations with many of you within our church, people and conversations that, man, would leave people scratching their heads, trying to make sense of God when you look at the circumstances and situations that, that people have had to endure and, and walk through. Incredible loss, pain, difficulty, and situations where people have prayed and they've prayed for God to move and work and it seems as though nothing is, is happening. And those are, those are hard moments. And it's even harder, I think, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, because like when you, when you layer faith on top of these hard circumstances that we see, and as Christians, we believe in a God who's active and involved in this world, and not only in this world, but in our, our lives, and we believe that God can do something about it. I mean, we sing songs about this, a way-making God, a miracle-working God, and Yet all we have to do is open our eyes and look around at the world around us and it doesn't take long to realize like there's this gap. And and how do we reconcile a good, gracious, loving God with the reality of the pain and suffering that we experience in the world around us? And that is where struggle can so easily set in. That's where doubt can so quickly set in. I remember about a year ago, I was at the Webster campus on a Sunday morning while we were uh, singing. So I was in service and we were singing a song we sing regularly around here. And there's a line in that song um, that goes like this, that I'm going to see a victory for the battle belongs to the Lord. And I remember seeing those lyrics and singing those lyrics. And as I was singing that, there were some very dear friends that, that came to mind, very dear friends of my wife, Emily, and I. And we knew that they were navigating through a really hard season in their family, And within their family, there was, uh, in their extended family, a brother and sister-in-law that were struggling with substance abuse. And this substance abuse was just sending shockwaves all throughout the family. It was incredibly difficult. It eventually led to the sister-in-law losing her life. And now you have a five-year-old kid that's also in the balance here, and the family is struggling with, what do we do? How do we How do we help? Where do we go from here? And I remember thinking of that family as I'm singing this song, God, we're going to see a victory for the battle belongs to you. And yet here we are a year later, and I I don't really know if that situation has changed at all. In fact, things might even be harder and more challenging now than they were a year ago. So what do we do with that? What do we do with situations like that? And that's exactly what we want to try and talk about over these next four weeks together. What do we do when life hits hard? And over the next four weeks, we're going to try to answer that question together. And today we're going to start by looking at the book of James. James chapter 1, I'd invite you to turn there, however you access God's word, but turn to James chapter 1. We're going to be camped out there. We're going to look at the first 12 verses there. 
And as we begin today, what we're going to do is we're going to begin with God's purpose, his view. What is God's view when it comes to trials and suffering that we experience in our lives? And we're going to do that through the uh, the lens of James chapter 1. And uh, it was actually 22 years ago that I preached my very first sermon. 22 years ago. I was 17 years old, and I was a senior in high school. And at the time, our youth pastor kind of had this requirement that all the guys in the senior class had to give a talk, had to give a sermon in youth group before they graduated. And the text that I chose was this text that we were going to look at today, James chapter 1. And uh, let's hope my talk today goes better than how that one went, because that that one was pretty rough, if I'm being honest. Uh, But it was a text, you know, I understood as a 17-year-old kid, like I understood the point, but yet I've spent the last 22 years of my life learning how to apply what we are going to see here as James walks us through this. And it's it's also something I'm going to spend the rest of my life continuing to learn to apply. But let's jump right into it. We'll start in verse 1, and we learn a little bit of the context of this letter. And James, uh, it says this in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. So right here, we are introduced to the author, and the author is actually a family member of Jesus. This is Jesus' brother, his half-brother, James. James's parents were Mary and Joseph. So we know he's the author, and we also know that he's writing to Uh, Christians to the church that had at this time been scattered all around the known world at that time. And they had been scattered because of intense persecution and suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. And these are brand new baby Christians. These are first generation Christians that are realizing very early on that following Jesus was not as easy as perhaps they thought it might be. They're learning quickly that this is costing them more than they had anticipated. And so James is writing to them. And James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem for nearly 30 years. So you got to imagine James probably carries a burden of, of concern and love and care for his brothers and sisters that are scattered around the area right now, suffering for the cause of Christ. And look at what James says to them in verse, verse 2. He says, consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So right here, James takes him two verses right out of the gate. He's shooting straight, and he just says, he starts by saying, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And notice, James doesn't say, if you face trials. No, James says, when we face trials. And this idea here in the Christian life is this, that trials are a required course in God's curriculum. This isn't one we can clep out of. There's no cliff note version or shortcut around this this class. No, it's a required course in God's curriculum. It's not a matter of if, but when. But I think oftentimes there can be this misconception within the church, within Christianity, that when I follow Jesus or when I place my faith and trust in life, that, that things get easier. In fact, isn't it in the Bible, this statement that, that goes like God would never give me more than I can handle? Right? God would never give me more than I, I can handle. And so people think that or they assume that that statement is in the Bible. And so when those people then bump into a trial or they bump into um, suffering, they really tend to struggle. And the problem is that statement is actually not found in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. That statement actually comes from a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of a verse that is in the New Testament. In fact, it's this verse right here we're going to take a look at. 
Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and he says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So this verse here, as we just looked at it, it's actually talking about temptation. This verse isn't talking about trial, hardship, or suffering. And God is saying we never have to give in to temptation, that there is always a way out. The question is, it's really just a matter of are we going to choose God's way or are we going to choose our own way? This verse isn't saying we shouldn't expect to experience pain, suffering, or trials. In fact, the Bible says in many places that because of our faith in Jesus, we will experience trials. Jesus tells us this very thing in John 16, 33. He says, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What does Jesus tell his followers the, the seven-day forecast of their lives and, and my life here today is going to be? What's the seven-day forecast? It's this. It's trouble, 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 trouble. Trouble is coming. And why is that? Well, it's because we live in a world that is broken because of our sin. Our world is cursed because of sin and our desire to do things our way apart from God's way. And as a result of that, there's consequences, there's trials, there's struggle that we experience as a result of that, consequences of our own sin and choices, as well as the consequence of others. And Jesus says, we're going to experience all kinds of trouble in this life. And so both James and Jesus, they show us here that none of us can escape a life of suffering. And also, also notice that word many in verse 2. That means it's not just going to be one and done in your life. In fact, there will be multiple forms that come at multiple times, that come in multiple ways in your life. There might even be seasons in your life that it feels overwhelming or it just feels like you're consumed by trials in life. Trials are always going to be a part of our lives this side of eternity. And they'll find us. Trials can find us anywhere. That word face in verse 2, it literally means to walk into, which means you don't even have to go looking for them. You're going to bump into them. You're going to, they're going to find you. You can't run from them. And then James tells us how we're to perceive the purpose of these trials. And he says in verse 2 that we're to consider them with pure joy. He tells us that we're to view all trials with pure joy. Which means it's not just consider, okay, this one I'll have joy in. But then this one over here, I'm going to be angry and be frustrated and, and grumpy. We, we don't get to pick. He says we're to view all trials with pure joy. Now... Let's talk about this for a moment, because before you go and write this verse down on a card and start handing it out to all of your friends who are struggling right now, of like, dude, I know your house just burned down, but guess what? Consider it pure joy. Congratulations. Or hey, I know your brand new car, you just totaled it, but guess what? Hey, consider it pure joy. Congrats. Right? No, before we go and do that, let's talk about this for a second. What does James mean by this? Because who, who does that? Who says, oh, she broke up with me? Consider it pure joy, or cancer, or disease, or heart attack. Who says consider that pure joy? No one does that. So what does it mean to consider this with all joy? Because that does sound pretty crazy. Until we understand, I think, what James is getting at here. And if you notice, James doesn't say to act joyful in all suffering. Meaning James isn't telling us to fake it. James isn't dismissing the emotions of grief, pain, anger, shock, 
sorrow in the midst of our suffering. In no way is James just writing off the hurt and the pain that we experience in hard times. He's not saying don't feel any pain in this trial, but rather what he is doing is he's challenging the way in which we are going to ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, the grand scheme of life, view this trial in our lives. And he says to consider it with pure joy. Another way you could say it is to count or to count this trial as, as joy. That's actually a mathematical term. You could even use the word calculate as joy would also be accurate. So that means that we as Christians are to compute this trial we are walking through in a completely different way than the world around us would compute this trial. It means that we need to have this bigger view, this elevated view, this, this God view, theological view of hardship that, that does not allow our minds to somehow conclude that God is evil, that God has fallen asleep at the wheel, or that God has just somehow left us in this hopeless state or this state of despair in the midst of this trial. He says, no, we're to compute this trial or to calculate this trial in, su- in, in such a way that we end up lifting our eyes upwards to our Father to see, man, there's something else happening here that God is doing here. I might not be able to see it, but I know that God is up to something and it's for my joy. And remember, remember this letter is written to an audience that's going through a tremendous amount of persecution for their faith. In fact, the persecution that they're experiencing is, is a rare type of persecution we really just don't ever experience here in America and here within Christianity in America. Very rarely is anyone in the United States persecuted for their faith or going to jail or even killed for their faith, but this happened regularly within the early church. And so he's talking to an audience that believes God is good. They also believe that trials are bad. And so because both of these things are happening, might be tempted to think, well, maybe God isn't who I thought he was. Maybe he's forgotten about me. Maybe he's just cruel or maybe he is just evil. And James is saying, look, if that's our first response, when we bump into a trial or when suffering sets in, then perhaps that might be an indicator that we're, we're missing on what God is intending to do and to teach us through this trial. And the reason we're able to compute or to calculate these trials as joy is because we know something. You and I, we know something. And James tells us what that is in verse 3. He says, because you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Not lacking in anything. What James tells us here in these verses is that trials... The way God views them, that trials are actually meant to test our faith. They're literally the testing of our faith. And that is this this perspective we are to have, this theological framework that we're working with here, that a trial is the basis for which my faith in Jesus is going to be tested. It's validating that what I confess to be true, that what I say to be true with my mouth is actually still true even when the wheels fall off of life. You see, God's in the... the business of making sure that our faith and our worship of Jesus isn't just a theory. It's just not something we just do on Sundays as we sing songs or we show up to things. It's not just a theory. No, it's the testing of our faith through the circumstances and the ups and downs and the reality of life. And God uses different means, even hardship and suffering, to develop within us something that's so precious that not even circumstances can take it away. 
because we know that God is doing something and he is working out something both in us and through us in the midst of this trial that we might not be able to see right now, we might not even be able to fully understand right now, but we can know and trust in him. James says in verse three that the goal of that is to produce perseverance. That word means to wait patiently or to abide in or to cling to over the long haul. And James says here that the purpose of trials is actually to bring you and to bring me to a place that we can cling to God and we can wait on God in a completely new and different category that we wouldn't have been able to have done otherwise. And he says in verse four, the ultimate goal there is to make us complete or, or to mature us or to perfect us in Christ so that we lack nothing. Paul says something similar in Romans eight twenty eight, speaking specifically to followers of Jesus is a well-known passage. And he writes, and we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? What is God's purpose? It's this, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. So trials are meant to mature us into the likeness of Jesus so that we lack nothing. I once heard this story of Michelangelo, who was a famous, well-known artist and sculptor. And Michelangelo, he was, uh, he was once asked while he was creating the statue of David out of this huge piece of, of granite. Someone asked him, how is it that you're able to take this huge chunk of granite and carve or form David out of it? And you know what Michelangelo's response was? He said, that big chunk of granite, that actually is David. David is already there. I am just taking away what ought not to be there. And as I thought about that, and I reflected on that, and thought about it in regards to what James is teaching us here, that, that in many ways, trials are the divine chisel of God. They are. Trials are the divine chisel of God. It's where he's saying, man, that attitude or that reaction or that behavior, man, I'm going to chisel that out. I'm going to chisel that away because that ought not to be there. Nate, you have this reaction or sometimes you get so upset too quickly. And you know what, Nate? I'm going to try to chisel that out of you. Nate, you have this propensity to rely on yourself and just working hard or being, being good enough. You know what? I'm going to, try to, I'm going to chisel that away from you. That ought not to be there. there. You, have, you have this propensity to rely on things that are far less significant than Christ. And you know what, Nate? I'm going to chisel those things away from you. Trials, they're the divine chisel of God. And look, this isn't just for the short run, the short term. This is for the long run over our lives. And so verses two through four here, we see this per perspective that we're to have concerning trials in our life, that we don't just view trials as some sort of cosmic accident, that God is just puppeteering evil in your life and they're somehow detached from any meaning or purpose in our, our lives that would lead us to hopelessness or despair. But no, instead what James is doing, he's, he's painting this picture for us as followers of Jesus to view trials with joy and to believe in God's divine plan that he's working out something in us and through us to produce something in us, a trust and a reliance on Jesus that we would not be able to have on our own. And what happens is, is what happens is we begin to discover this pure joy that transcends circumstances rather than just a superficial, short-term cheap, finite happiness that just simply tied to our circumstances and whether things are good or bad. No, it's far greater, far better than that. 
And James says in verse 5, he continues, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. You see, James understands that trials are hard, and we're going to bump into moments where we don't get it, and we're trying to piece this together, and it's hard, and it's confusing. And he tells us here that when we bump into those moments, if we lack wisdom, we should ask of God. James tells us that in the midst of that trial, we need to pray. We need to pray, and we need to ask for God's wisdom. And that word there for wisdom is really interesting. That word wisdom here, it's speaking of the plan of God that you and I have a hard time often seeing or trying to figure out. It's God's perspective, his view. Isaiah 35 talks about this, that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we see this truth at work throughout the Bible and throughout scripture that oftentimes God's perspective on the way that things work and how things should operate are oftentimes the exact opposite of the way that we see it or the way that culture sees it. Here's just a couple of examples of God's view on things. If you want to be strong in God's eyes, what do you need to do? Well, you need to learn to be meek. You want to be rich in God's eyes, what do you need to do? Well, you need to learn to hold loosely to the material things of this world. You want to be wise in the eyes of God, what do you need to do? You need to become a fool in the way that the world sees and views things. You want to be exalted by God? Well, you need to learn to be humble. You want to become beautiful in God's eyes? Well, then you need to look inward and see as God sees you, not as outwardly as the world sees. You see, all throughout Scripture, God's wisdom is almost the complete opposite of the way that we have been taught in our culture. And his wisdom does not work like man's wisdom. So when we bump into trials, when we bump into moments of our lives that are hard and challenging, we need to seek God's wisdom. And it says that he loves to give this, that he, he gives generously to all without finding fault. And this idea of going to God and praying to God is not something you have to do alone. You can invite others to pray alongside of you and to pray with you. People within this faith community that care for you and love you it could be people and friends you know or serve with who are in your community group. But we need to go and we need to pray and we need to seek God's perspective, God's wisdom, when we just can't seem to figure it out. And then James actually then tells us how we are to pray in verse 6. He continues and he says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So James, he tells us how we are to pray and how we are to ask. And he says, you must believe and not doubt. He's saying we need to trust we need to trust completely, wholeheartedly. And he uses this phrase double-minded here. Now, what in the world does that mean? Does double-minded mean like, okay, I, I have to art, be able to articulate everything perfect, perfectly before I can go to God in my moment of pain? Does, does that mean I can never come to God with any questions or doubt? What, what does double-minded mean? That's not what it means. If that were the case, we would all be lost. Um, let, me, let me try to illustrate what double-minded means. I think of when I taught my kids how to swim. And uh, like any good parent, when you're teaching your kid or if you're a teacher or you're teaching you know, a kid how to swim, this is how you, how you do it, right? You set your kid over on the side of the pool, on the edge of the pool, and then as a parent, you know, I would get in and be several feet away, and then I would say, all right, all right, jump. Right, like that's how you teach kids to swim, right? I mean, that's at least how I did it. I'm not prescribing. This is actually probably a terrible way to teach kids how to swim. But what's happening in this moment in my kid's mind, right? They're over here on, on the side of the pool where 
it's solid, right? It's dry, the ground is secure, and yet they're looking out and they want to swim and they want to experience the thrill of jumping in and, and learning how to swim, but yet they're also realizing like, how deep is the water? Those waves look kind of high, it might be cold, or what's it gonna feel like if my head goes under the water, right? They're, they're wondering and they're worrying, but yet they also know that my dad is trustworthy. I know my dad would never ask me to do something that would be harmful to me, right? They're double-minded, right? They're wanting to hang on to the safety and the security of the side of the pool, but yet also wanting to experience what it's like to swim. And what God is saying here to us is, look, when it comes to the pool of divine trials, he's saying, look, you can't have both. You can't hang on to your circumstances with one side and then hang on to like this half trust in God and in his plan at the same time. This is God in the midst of our suffering, standing out in the storm of life with the waters raging around. And he's saying, look, trust me. Jump, I got you. You can trust in my plan. You can trust that I am sovereign and I am working out a plan. You might not be able to see it right now, but trust in me and come to me. This is what it looks like to come to God for his wisdom with full trust. He desires to so graciously give this wisdom to guide us through our, struggle, our struggles and trials. So in our trials, we see here that we're to pray and we are, we're to trust. And as you look down through these verses, as you look down through these seven or eight verses here, I, I want to ask you a question. And the question is this, is, is have you ever met someone like this in your life? Someone that embodies what James has just walked us through and described with us here. Maybe it was a family member, maybe it was a friend of yours, where they faced trials of many different kinds that were hard and they were challenging and they were, they were difficult. And you watched them go through that. And as you observed, you saw their extraordinary faith and you saw their confidence in God. And they walked through things that you would hope to never have to face in life, but yet they walked through them with endurance and a confidence in God that never wavered. Have you ever met someone like that? I've had the privilege over the course of my life to have known a number of people like that. And I, I got to tell you that those people, those are the most inspiring, hope-giving, faith-giving people that I have ever met. I'm most inspired by, by, by people whose faith is tested and endures. I'm more inspired by people who get what seems like a no from God and their faith endures than I am by people that just always seem like they get a yes from God or their life is pain-free or wrinkle-free. I'm more inspired by people who get a no and yet they remain faithful. And why is that? I think the reason we're so inspired by people like that is because they leave us with confidence and they give us this confidence that there is a category of faith out there. There's a category of confidence in God that can withstand any earthly circumstance this world might throw at us. It's a confidence that we can endure anything life may throw at us. The people whose prayers go unanswered, but their confidence in God remains firm. You know what it reminds me a lot of? It reminds me a lot of my friends that I mentioned at the beginning of my, of my sermon. That even though here we are a year later and things largely remain unchanged, if not even a little bit more challenging and difficult, yet their faith remains strong. And their faith in Christ has produced endurance. It has produced perseverance and even courage in the midst of a broken family and substance abuse and even a loss of life. Their faith is still strong. And here's what's amazing. What's amazing is because of their endurance, because of their perseverance, that's why I am sharing their story with all of you today. 
It's the people who get a yes from God that oftentimes we like forget. We just run by, which there's nothing wrong with that. Yeses are a wonderful, great thing. But it's the people who get a no from God, but yet their faith remains rock solid. That changes us. It marks us. And this is what James was trying to help his audience, this first century uh, followers of Jesus, to understand. And it's his goal for you and me here today. And honestly, for James's audience, the first century church, things really didn't get much better. In fact, things never were really good for the early church. But their unwavering faith and their unwavering confidence in their Savior, Jesus, literally changed the world. In the early church, through that persecution and suffering, it began to move and it began to spread to what it is today, spread out all over the globe. Their endurance in the face of trials literally changed the world. And here's how James, he ends this section here in in verse 12. And look at what he says. He says this, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He tells us there, there's a blessing and there's a promise here. And the blessing is that I can't explain it. I don't know how this works. But as we endure in the midst of suffering, God blesses us. He sees us. He ministers to us. And then there's also this promise that we also know that one day there's going to come a day where there will be no more suffering, no more trials. And we'll spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. And the point I think that James leaves us with is this, that God values and uses persevering faith. God values and uses persevering faith. And God has invited you and he has invited me to step into this realm and to begin to see the trials that we are facing every single day in this life because here's what we know. And here's what we know with confidence, that persevering faith, not only does it change us, it changes us, it matures us, it refines our faith. Christ is working in and through our lives to help us become more like him. There's a work that is doing in us, but it also leaves a mark on the world around us and on the lives of the people around us that look and say like, how is it that she is able to endure that trial with such confidence and hope? How is it that he is able to endure the pain and suffering there, but yet his confidence remains sure? I got to figure that out. I got I to gotta understand what that is. And that's where we go. It is not something that we bring to the table. It's not something that we can produce. It is only because of Christ. I wish we could choose our trials, but we can't. We don't choose the trials. We simply choose our response to these trials and how we respond to the trials that we face. It refines our faith. It proves our faith. And James invites you and me to lean in and to allow God to purify and strengthen our faith, even in the midst of things we would never choose for our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the truth of your word that helps us see your ways and your perspectives that we so desperately need to see I thank you that even in the midst of trial and heartache, God, you can provide clarity and hope to us that produces a faith that is strong. I pray, God, that you would encourage those of us across our our church family that are struggling right now. Give them perseverance. May you give them endurance to not lose sight of you. May they cling to you, our rock, who is sure and strong. We thank you for the work, God, that you are doing in and through our lives through these trials to become more like you. We thank you, Lord, for the time we've had together this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.